To shot reverse shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily, how's it going? I'm all right, thank you, Ed. It is going a little more smoothly uh, at the time of recording <laughs> in myself than it has been. I would like to thank my support network, my therapist, and uh, medication for kicking in. That's always yeah drugs. I'd like to thank prescription <laughs> drugs. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing okay. I had a weird moment this week in relation to my real life job, or not so much my current job, but like the the job I had 14 years ago. <laughs> um, for people who don't know, I don't really talk about this much on the pro- the podcast. Um, but I work in the games industry, the video games industry, and I have done off and on since 2005 and in 2000 between 2005 and 2008 i worked at rare the company behind such games as banjo kazooie donkey kong series uh viva pinata all those sort of games i worked on a bunch of games for them as a as a tester and one of the games i worked on was a remake of goldeneye which never saw the light of day due to various like legal wranglings uh, which would have come out on Xbox Live Arcade in around you know sort of two thousand seven two thousand eight, but ended up not coming out. And that version of the game kind of leaked online this week. Someone somewhere kind of hatched together a ROM version of it that people have been able to download and play. And it's been very weird seeing people play this game that I worked on so long ago and that I assumed would never ever see the light of day and also kind of gratifying because everyone was talking about how well it plays and everything and i was thinking oh yeah we we were all really happy with it as well (laughs) really wish that it had come out so but that's just like it's such a weird thing that very very occasionally something that i work on will cross over to the mainstream in some regards or something that i have worked on will cross over to the mainstream and it never stops being a little weird when Mm. it happens when you start seeing um when you start seeing headlines and you think, oh, yeah, I worked on that. How weird. Yeah, that often happens for me. And again, I've signed many NDAs, so I can't be too specific. But this is... Oh, I've just realised how long ago it was, Ed. Ten <laughs> years ago, I was doing a lot of script reports. Not for money. <laughs> 21-year-old Emily, 31-year-old Emily would like a word. But every so often, like, you know... Four or five years later, after I'd sort of read a script, um, or even now, I'll be like, wait in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I said not to pass on that one. You're welcome, <laughs> very established director. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's, that's mainly been, uh, that's mainly what happened to me this week. You know, I've just kind of like thinking about that, thinking about ageing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same, 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 same. I think this is just what happens now, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> Uh, so we'll go on to the news for this week or for the last couple of weeks because obviously we were out last week. I think the big news in kind of film and television was that we had the Golden Globe nominations uh, last week and to no one's surprise, <laughs> they were not good. Um, I mean, there were some movies got recognised that, you know, were deserving and everything, but I think the news was overwhelmingly dominated by the snubs, most notably 
you know, on the TV side, I May Destroy You, the Michelle, Michaela Cole series that you know you and I have talked about at length on this podcast and was in uh, your your best of the year for last oh, year and was, on, and was on many people's best of list you know got cited as a great work of art something that's like very distinct and groundbreaking in a lot of ways and was a subject of much discussion when it was airing uh, over the summer and just got nothing no <laughs> no no nominations whatsoever but another show that we also talked about quite a bit <laughs> over the course of the year, Emily in Paris, Emily in Paris, sorry, <laughs> Emily in Paris was nominated for a bunch of things. And yeah, that just, I mean, Emily in Paris getting nominated for anything would probably feel like an affront to whatever show didn't get nominated in its stead. But the fact that it was... I May Destroy You, which has received such resounding acclaim and was such a topic of discussion for such a long period of time, does strike me as, like, quite galling. Like, nothing, Ed. Not not one. Like, not even, like, costume. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes the Golden mm. Globes, something that's really lauded can kind of sneak in in a category that you're not expecting. Because, of course, yeah. the Golden Globes has more categories than a lot of other award ceremonies and sometimes that's kind of great because the thing that i really applaud the globes for doing is having like comedy as a separate genre and even though i'm mm. sort of yearning for the day where it's like let's just kind of strip gender from things as in categories but like up the representation so you have essentially like best performance in drama in comedy because i think we'll get a better uh, kind of a better indicator and, and it just seems like that's what to reward and i think it like for things like oscars and bafta particularly the oscars i think it will puncture a lot of the kind of the really heavy campaigning for certain roles and and diversify in every sense the um what the idea of oscar bait actually is because there's mm. not really any kind of there's no surprises at the Oscars anymore. It's just that continuing galling thing. So when this happened at the Globes, it's as if I May Destroy You never happened. And again, it's kind of that, uh, I just think of that Pingu sulking meme where it's <laughs> like, well, now I don't want it. And because not everything needs to get an award. And I think I May Destroy You is so incredible that it will and I, I'm going to say it, it will genuinely transcend award seasons because I don't see how it's not going to be a watershed moment and it's just shown what television can do and it's absolutely fine not to like it. <laughs> That's, you know, there is the fact that it has had this kind of cultural, uh, this really uh, sort of cultural moment. But, you know, it's like Nanette, like maybe we'll look back on it and these are the sort of, these are the pioneers of, starting to actually have conversations in culture and you know to what degree are we representing and tackling with rape culture in mm. in uh in media in tv in film rather than just being uh part of it in a different way and i don't know like so it's not like it needs one but it's just really weird like galling is the word ed i have to agree with you and of course that you know uh our rme has been nominated (laughs) 
and you know just kudos to abby govindan for her stunning <laughs> twitter bit and yeah it's true she was uh she was robbed as the original creator also the, the, sort of the, the way that she's managed to expose the state of journalism right now is simultaneously <laughs> like depressing and uh stunning all in one so again just nothing but kudos for abby um but remember remember fleabag when when that sort of swept the board in america mm-hmm. and it's like guys you're really not making this look good for anyone because <laughs> and, and again oh you know the the plus side you know that a lot of people wanted to focus on is like oh my god there's three women there's three women in the director's category and it's like yeah but only eight have been nominated over the history of the globes and only one is one and that was barbara streisand and, you know, me and Rich D. Grant are very happy about that, of course. But still, come on, guys, it's not a good track record. And because we are still scraping for representation, anything that happens is literally like a kind of clapping for crumbs feeling. So I think, mm. you know, there has to carry on being this pressure if anything is really going to move. And is it the... um? I immediately thought of that bit in The Simpsons where Sideshow Bob's in jail, and I think Mm -hmm. they take his daytime emmy away from him and they like chuck it on the pile and i think it's mainly golden globes so it's not (laughs) even like that the globes has like the most stunning reputation and you know in terms of hosting it's going to be bi-coastal it's just weird all these things that like we're going to be bi-coastal for the first time because you know amy poehler's in la and uh tina fey's in new york and it's like why are you yeah (laughs) like every tv show isn't shown at different time zones in america and it's an hour's difference it's oh it's just weird it is weird 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 blumped <laughs> mm, yeah and uh before we move on i think also one of the especially weird things which i've forgotten about but i think this had been announced previously was the the movie minari which is um oh, the more acclaimed <laughs> movies of the year american movies of the year it should be pointed out because it's by a uh korean american filmmaker making the story very much about his experiences and his family's experiences and it's made by a american like production companies and things like that and it didn't get nominated for anything at the golden globes because they were forced to run it in foreign language (laughs) which is just so weird (laughs) such a strange choice and like as well people referred to it as being like a weird movie or something like that where everyone's like just say foreign you know just say asian or something like it's not a weird movie it's like a very straightforward kind of like coming of age story and a story about you know kind of like coming to a new country and things like that but it's fundamentally quite an american story and it's like that was one of the weirdest things was just the way they treated that uh that film and also you know in terms of other snubs i think uh, delroy lindo not getting anything for the five bloods in which he's absolutely incredible uh is uh, a real shame because obviously he was he's fantastic in that movie but at the same time you know i think chadwick boseman's death kind of casts a pall over that movie and i think any momentum that he might have had probably got blunted by that in kind of like you know, to put it in the kind of like the most cynical terms of Oscar of like award seasons, like so much of that movie is now just associated with the fact that it was one of his final roles that it's kind of hard to say, oh, yeah, by the way, this other guy who was in the movie was also incredible. And I think that's I think that's a, ter- that's a terrible shame all around. Completely. And oh, it's just so frustrating because, you know, 
for Minari, from what I understand it, under the same kind of category, if you say Minari, sorry, is a foreign film, then The Sopranos is, and so, you know, I know in America had sort of like UK American funding, but it's like, what are these stories of immigrants? What's, what's the thing that's different? If only I could put my finger on it, Ed. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And just to confirm, it, it did actually get nominated for foreign language, but also that doesn't make sense. No! no. <laughs> uh, it's, that's, that's such a... Yeah, that, that, that whole nomination for Argo is just like... But points at how fundamentally ridiculous I think the Golden Globes are, and that's not a surprise. I don't know why we're shocked every year when they do something dumb, but it's just I think it's the new ways they find to be dumb. Yes, that's that's the thing about it. Like every year, she's kind of like, oh, okay, so so that's how you're going to handle it. Cool. Innovating new ways to be dumb. <laughs> Our next story, uh, much more serious, is the stories about Marilyn Manson. Them coming out, uh, very specifically Evan Rachel Wood coming forward and talking about her relationship with him when she was younger and how abusive he was, which has then caused a number of other people who have been involved with Marilyn Manson over the years to come forward and say that he was abusive to them and also like just general reports from people who are in his sphere um, for, for over those years coming forward with stories about him just generally being uh, terrible and abusive. And it's, you know, like it, it's, it's interesting because... You know, and sometimes when you hear these stories about various people in positions of power turning out to be abusers, you know, there's a shock to it. Like, there's like, oh my God, I can't believe that they would be the ones to do it. And you hear about Marilyn Manson, and my initial response was, oh yeah, of course. Like, why wouldn't he be? Like, that's his whole thing, was he was like always meant to be shocking and provocative and, you know, really kind of like pushing the envelope. And that kind of made me realize, oh, right, that's actually a really good smokescreen for being a, like a genuinely abusive person where you are so kind of like outre and you're you're doing it in such a theatrical way that people would like disregard accounts maybe that you're actually an abusive person in real life because the caricature is so big that it kind of obscures that and yeah, that's just a, a a real, real horrible thing. It's the same kind of cognitive fallacy that happened with Jimmy Savile in the UK. Mm. That was the first thing I thought of, where people said it's this paradox of, oh, well, there was always something wrong with him, but then, no, because he was so wrong, no one ever did anything about it. Yeah. Even though... You know, there are lots of rumours. And the thing about hiding in plain sight is that that's nonsense because you, or it's essentially you can't hide in plain sight without enablers. Mm. And it's the same with Weinstein in many regards. You know, there are a lot of people in institutions who were essentially financially to gain from Manson, not, or um, I've forgotten his actual name, Brian. Uh, yeah, Brian Warner. If uh, who who were you know invested in Marilyn Manson and Brian Warner, so they weren't going to hold Brian Warner accountable because they set to financially gain mm. and you know lose a lot if he were actually held accountable. But the thing yeah. is, is that there's also been rustlings in uh, sort of Twitter and various other places that something to do with uh, Army Hammer 
and the allegations about him, something really massive is going to come out soon. And something that I saw today that I thoroughly agreed with is that, you know, up until this year, Army Hammer was seen as this really sort of classy, charismatic actor who was starting to really become, you know, mainstream and on the ascendant, like Rebecca on Netflix had, had dropped and he played these kind of, you know, because I think he, even though he really came on the scene because of the social network, I think everything sort of went wild after Call Me By Your Name. And he mm. was playing these very sort of like magnetic sexual sort of characters. And then I, I keep coming back to Sorry to Bother You. And now mm-hmm. it all takes a really horrible turn. But I digress. The main thing is that you d- no one knows what an abuser looks like because mm. there is no um, immediate kind of look. It's anyone can be abusive who abuses people. <laughs> like that's that's the under underlying thing. So when people say this person's abusing me, believe them and and look into it maybe. So just like absolute. I'm in absolute awe and appreciation and admiration of Evan Rachel Wood and everyone else coming forward with their testimonies and their experience of Marilyn Manson. And it's not just women that he's been in relationships with who he's like absolutely traumatised, it seems, across the board. But anyone who had anything to do within his circle, just this real kind of like holding a really horrible court. And let's not forget Evan Rachel Wood managed to um, overthrow the statute of limitations like she's done incredible advocacy work and has actually affected change in the law and that was even before she came forward to disclose it and to say it definitely was Marilyn Manson Brian Warner so I just think it's incredible what she's doing and everyone else and just it's one of those things where it kind of makes you speechless how brave and how important it is what they're doing mm, yeah Absolutely. Uh, final bit of news this week. There were a couple of uh, notable deaths uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, first of which was uh, Cecily Tyson, the uh, Emmy and I think a Tony Award winning actress who was kind of an icon of the American stage and screen for 50 something years. <laughs> you know, like a huge amount of time, a hugely important person uh, to black audiences in particular you know like a black actress who was like a star for such a long period of time and i saw so many outpourings of grief from uh from celebrities but also just like so many people on twitter who grew up with her work and were just like so uh in love with her and what she represented and you know like it was really lovely reading various like obituaries of her and people talking about her life and various facts about it like how she I believe was the host of the highest rated episode of Saturday Night Live ever, which is kind of like an wow. interesting footnote for, you know, a long career. And also just like there were just so many great pictures of her over the years. There's some of my favourites. Well, one's being shared of her, at, uh, I think at some awards show or something with James Earl Jones, which was really, uh, really beautiful. Uh, yeah, so that was... Uh, and also just like uh, I, I was driving around near my parents' place in central florida um the other week and i just noticed that someone had just bought a billboard paying tribute to cecily tyson oh. which i thought was really was really lovely and just a real kind of like surprise considering like say 
billboard along the side of a road <laughs> in the middle of nowhere central florida but like it was just like there was something like just so touching about someone having done that to just kind of like pay tribute to her and then uh just the other day uh christopher Plummer passed away at the age of 91 uh obviously kind of like great canadian actor who uh was great in more or less everything he did was very much a consummate uh professional in that he would do anything you know he would do uh the sound of music he would be in one, that one star trek movie where he's the villain oh, yeah. he would be uh he would be in uh, you know he would uh do do a solid and replace kevin spacey in uh all the money in the world at a moment's notice you know just like one of those those actors who would just show up and do absolutely anything and it was uh, it was really nice seeing him in, in the last decade or so after he won for Beginners, won his Oscar for Beginners, mm. how that kind of led to, I think, a renewed appreciation of him as an actor. And you saw him being cast in a lot more things. And there was just something really nice about how that last decade it was involved so much. Uh, so much of it was about people rediscovering his work, like seeing him as an older actor and then going back and seeing him as a younger man and getting a real sense for the depth and breadth of his career absolutely just amazing and also ed uh cloris leachman passed away oh god yeah who um i think is most nominated um actress the emmy awards i think along with mm. julia louis dreyfus i think is um neck and neck and she also won an oscar for the last picture show yeah um and yeah. mary tyler moore and just incredible that she spent that much time it's it's those real stalwarts of like tv and film mm-hmm. that she was always kind of there in the best possible way and, and you know always there but like always being at the top of her game as well you know just utterly hilarious and then uh like begging bogdanovich to consider her for the role in the last picture show and then getting an oscar for it i'm like kudos <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's a really classy move cloris so yeah, lost three three greats. So we'll go on to the topic for this week. And this week's topic was inspired by a conversation I had with my dad. I was telling him a few weeks ago about the episode that we did on blind spots, about, you know, people uh, whose work we feel we should know better and that we, you know, should be, uh, try and do the best we can to kind of learn more about them. And when he, I was talking to him about it, he thought that when we were talking about blind spots, we were talking about people who we would have a blind spot for him that we kind of felt they couldn't do anything wrong. I kind of thought, oh, that's not at all what we meant, but it's actually an interesting idea to discuss about filmmakers who I guess will always have the time for or, or filmmakers that will always give a free pass to. So even if they are people who like maybe fell off quite notably in like recent years, we'll still like hope that they'll turn it around each time and so that's what we're going to be talking about we're going to talk about some of the filmmakers who you know whatever they do artistically we kind of feel like you know it's hard to discount them and i i stress artistically because obviously uh <laughs> someone commits a crime oh oh thanks ed dad i think this is great <laughs> when uh when you said oh this is what my da- dad thought we meant i was like oh yeah <laughs> that also really tracks um, mm. And I'm just going to kick us off straight away, Ed, if you don't mind, with Brendan jo- Fraser. Nice, yeah. Oh, love that man. I'm really excited that he seems to be hopefully in a place to 
feel open to being sort of in the public eye again because mm-hmm. and I heartily recommend everyone to read I think it was the GQ feature about him a year and a mm. bit ago or so um, recently which was I think very sensitively and compassionately written in terms of everything that he'd been through because Brendan Fraser is a figure of the Me Too movement himself because he suffered mm. a really awful um, assault and kind of how he was treated and again sort of highlighting that it's not as simple as a man abusing a woman power dynamics are much more nuanced than that and yes of course there is an undeniable gender sort of shift in that seemingly solely heterosexual dynamic but it's really not it's much more insidious than that and I think he's got quite lost among kind of being someone who's come out and been straightforward in terms of how badly it's affected the trauma from that and how it's affected them and their career but you know what like even before everything um happened to him and and he sort of took a step back from public eye i just loved everything that he's in like mm. i would i wouldn't like i rewatched georgia the jungle early in the sort of first uh cycle of lockdown and he's just so charming yeah like and the mummy he is brilliant gods and monsters hello mm-hmm. well, like what can he not do so i can and i i mean talk about blind spot ed i'm willing to finally get round to watching the last couple of series of the affair just because i heard he's in it mm, yeah he was very good in it as well i haven't seen them but um yeah that that was one of those projects that as soon as i heard that he was involved there i thought oh maybe i should actually watch the affair because like yeah. you i really like brendan fraser he was such a pivotal figure in my kind of like adolescent team viewing because i loved the, the first two mummy films so much if, which is probably you know the first one's great probably shouldn't have watched the mummy returns <laughs> as many times as i did um, <laughs> but, that's not a good movie but he's great in it and and he was such a perfect fit for that kind of roguish rakish adventurer like he was he was such a perfect kind of person to take on the mantle of the indiana jones style figure like I say, he's so funny in, and charming in George of the Good Jungle. He could just modulate his amount of cartoonishness so well. Because he is, like, you know, he is, to, to quote Verti Rock, he's cartoon pilot handsome. <laughs> like, he, you could just put him in a movie and it's hard to believe <laughs> that someone is that good looking and has that kind of, like, physique and he could, like, use that really well. He's really good in Bedazzled. The, oh um, yes! Remake with Elizabeth Hurley, where they're both incredibly funny. He's good in Looney Tunes back in action, acting with actual cartoons. You know, like he was just one of those people who you could just, just sloss him into anything, and he would just work. And then, you know, for various reasons, you know, uh, as we discussed, like his career ended up taking a, 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 a turn in the sort of the mid two thousands, and you know, he didn't really do much during the last decade, which is a terrible shame because when he would show up in things. Like, um, he's in that terrible um, Danny Boyle, John Paul Getty's series Trust, which was the the same story as the aforementioned All the Money in the World, um, which wasn't a very good show, but he showed up in it and he's very good in it. And it's very, he, he has that thing that, you know, like the great movie stars have where just as soon as they're on screen, you're just reminded of how much you love them and like you you just kind of like particularly for them like him who's been out of the spotlight for a long time you just kind of want the best for him oh absolutely 
My first person that I had on this list, and the one, the, literally the first person I thought of, because when I was having that conversation with my dad, there was a kind of like a, a controversy around him on Twitter. Uh, it was Wong Kar Wai, <gasps> who mm. artistically I don't think has fallen off like that much. I didn't like uh, My Blueberry Nights very much. Mm. Um, and I'm not super keen on 24D6, but like, I like most of his movies, love a bunch of them. But the controversy around him was like how the Criterion Collection are putting out a big box set of a bunch of his movies and they have been restored and, you know, they're all in, you know, high definition and they all look, you know, kind of like pristine now. But he's altered the colouring on them. So, like, the they are all kind of like green in a way that none of them were before. They all kind of look like he shot them in the Matrix. And... <laughs> There was a lot of, you know, hand-wringing about that on on Twitter because people obviously fell in love with In the Mood for Love because of its rich colours and its earth tones and so suddenly having it having this weird greenish tint kind of, uh, you know, somewhat... It's kind of like that George Lucasy thing where you, you're kind of taking the movie away from people and, like, suddenly they're left with either just the movie in their memory or, like, the movie exists on older formats that maybe aren't as in good as, as high quality. And I think those are all valid concerns but like part of me just go like it's one car why let him do it he wants. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, he's he's one of the great he's one of the great filmmakers i i my, I, I do kind of agree with the sense of like it's kind of shitty that the best versions of his films will be these new ones that have kind of like toyed with things versus you know having the original versions available in the best quality out there but yeah which is the same problem i have again with george lucas and the, the the whole idea of like oh you can only buy the special edition versions of the movies you can't see the originals anywhere unless you know people have down unless you would basically get them illegally but at the same time i'm just kind of like he made so many good movies i'm willing to let him kind of indulge whatever this particular choice he has i guess it's kind of maybe you know he he used that similar style when he made the grandmaster and maybe that's just kind of the style that he likes now and he kind of wants to have the movies look how he thinks they should look in his head, which is, you know, his his right as a, an artist, I get, I guess. But yeah, like he was the first person I brought for up just because that was my reaction to that news was like, oh yeah, I guess that is kind of bad. But at the same time, <laughs> you know, like I just, I love his movies so much that I kind of, and I love his approach to art so much that I find it hard to like get too wound up about that choice. Yeah, for sure. I have to say that, like, sort of in terms of, like, East Asian directors uh, moving to South Korea now, Park Chan-wook mm. for me as well. Mm. Oh, yeah. Because even though... Right, even though I don't like Stoker, and I only mm. recently discovered it was written by Wentworth Miller of, uh, yeah. of Prison Break, and I was like, Wentworth, you, you kept that quiet. I felt like that would have been a bit more of a marketing um push at the time i yeah, i love the idea of wentworth miller being like i loved old boy to part chan work in their first meeting um being like yeah, you, and that- he's also like and by the way i'm a huge fan of shadow of a doubt can yeah. we do something with that <laughs> be like, that's why i think you'd be perfect for my weird vaguely incestuous long drama <laughs> which to be fair you can see how that works but yeah so i I have a I have a sort of um, ongoing uh, platonic argument with a friend of mine, you know, in that Stoker is a point of contention for us because I, I don't think it's very good. Like I think it's really entertaining, like as a melodrama. Mm. But he's like, no, 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 it's it's really good, and maybe that's 
that means it's good. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it just felt on the surface something really different. And mm. I mean, part of what he did, um, you know, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, which yeah. is one of the best films ever made. <laughs> so he gets he gets a, a pass from me. <laughs> yeah, I think also like he did such a good job with The Handmaiden, which I thought was oh. such such a great such a great movie so like tense and sexy and manages to kind of justify the fact that it's like three hours long or whatever by just being <laughs> relentlessly entertaining throughout but you know like if if like stoker was the last thing that he'd ever made i think that would have been like like you like i enjoy that movie it's not necessarily a movie i feel like i would say oh yeah that's good um, uh-huh. <laughs> like i admire the craft to it and i like the performances but like i'm yeah, they did doesn't quite hold together for me. But like, if that was the last film he made, I think yeah, that's kind of a, a a a sour note to go out on. But then you know comes back with the handmaid and it's like okay, he's not really lost a step too much. Yeah. Uh, also keeping it in East Asia for me, someone whose work I've been rewatching this week, uh, Takeshi Kitano, mm. the Renaissance man of Japanese cinema in the nineties, uh, actor, director, editor, but then also television host who has like been hosting the same show on Japanese television for like 30 years at this point um while he's also been like making movies that win the golden lion I just find I find his career just so fascinating because it's like imagine if Quentin Tarantino and Bruce Forsyth were the same man (laughs) just kind of like it's it's such a such a unique position that he holds in culture Uh, but in in terms of this subject like the mood the, the seven movies or so that he made between 1989 between violent cop and hannah b in 1997 i think that's an immaculate run of movies i think he, he did such great work there you know he did these wonderful existential bleak yakuza dramas he also did you know a couple of incredibly sweet and heartfelt stories that are about just ordinary people in a scene at the sea and the kids return which are just two of these two, like, really two beautiful character-focused dramas. And then he did, like, a weird sketch comedy movie in between called Getting Any, which is kind of... Uh, is just a, a, weird, a weird little sex comedy that he decided to make between all of this other stuff. I think that that run is just so special, and he's made some good films since then. Like, you know, I think It's Too Sappy, but Kikijiro's good. Uh, Zatoishi is a lot of fun. Dolls is really beautiful. But, like, he's not made anything that I've really liked since 2003, since Zatoishi. But every time he puts out a new movie, I'm like, well, gonna have to check it out. Gonna see if he's like found the magic again. If the new outrage movie is gonna be, you know, worth checking out. And invariably, they're usually not. They're either too self-indulgent or they're too kind of like clinical and like they don't have the 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 spirit I think his earlier movies have. But I just he's just not someone I'm ever gonna be able to write off or leave behind because I think you know the guy who made those seven movies is you just cannot you just cannot ignore him yeah not being able to ignore i think is definitely something that comes through on this i guess this is kind of the kind of waving someone through to the vip area even if they don't necessarily have they're not on the list <laughs> you're like mm-hmm. yeah but you should be in there <laughs> don't, um you are in a slightly different league i have to say like and this is another kind of lockdown 2020 experience I was delighted to find that uh, Amy Heckerling um, had a film that I never sort of 
never was really on my radar. Um, mm. uh, released in 2007 called I Could Never Be Your Woman. Mm. And it features Michelle Pfeiffer and Paul Rudd and a lot of sort of comedy actors sort of from around the UK doing questionable American accents. <laughs> I think it's notable because it's one of Saoirse Ronan's first film roles. Oh. It's it's utterly it's it's batshit there's no other way i can put it ed it is the strangest film and yet i was so entertained i think because it makes you know sometimes you're just sitting there being like just clean this it's fine just clean this it's fine just clean this it's fine but what it also has going for it is it opens with tracy ullman as mother nature kind of doing a rant to camera mm-hmm. and like to be honest that's sort of worth it alone but Amy Heckling, like, I don't know what she's, you know, up to now. Like, I'd love to see something more from her. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, she, you know, you, you know, if you do um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Look Who's Talking, you know, <laughs> something, mm. something else. Yeah, it looks like she's mainly working in TV now. Yeah. Uh, which I, I assumed would be the case because usually when there's like an actor who was uh, a director who was like big making comedies in the 90s it seems to be at some point they just migrate to television these days because that's kind of where those stories seem to get told uh, you know just trying to win, uh, and also I was trying to remember what her last like feature film was and it was a movie called Vamps which was a vampire comedy oh. with uh, Alicia Silverstone and uh, Kristen Ritter which I always wanted to see because I like both of them quite a bit and I like Amy Heckling. But yeah, she's definitely someone... You're right, like, they, someone who makes Clueless and Look Who's Talking and um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Johnny Dangerously. Like, you know, that's a, that's a hell of a run of, like, interesting, strange comedies. Mm. And someone who you should keep tabs on even if, you know, they're not able to do something on that scale again. Someone who... I think would be a controversial pick in, in my point, because I, I know there are people who love all of her films and don't think that she fell off at all. But uh, Lynn Ramsey is someone who... Like, I love her first two movies. I'm very lukewarm on her second two. But I think, like, Ratcatcher and Morven Caller and her shorts are so good. Yeah. And so, like, distinctive, and they've got such a great command of tone and they've got the, they're, they're just so you know they, they just feel unlike anyone else's movies really like they're like she's such a distinctive visual artist but I'm fine with not like totally being sold on we need to talk about Kevin or you never... oh crap yes <laughs> Sorry. In, in my head I was thinking I'm not there no it's the <laughs> other one you were never um, really here that's right yeah you were never really here, which you know. I think that that's one of those movies where, again, similar to um, Stoker, is like you know I admire the craft and the performances, but like I walked away from that movie and just pretty much like forgot anything that happened in it. I'm <laughs> like, the it same. Really, I feel like you and really I are, are pretty much the only people who are like you were never really here, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but like I, I you know, I, and also. Like her, the, the, her, her career. I'm so invested in like her getting a hit to make up for the two, like the the two movies she didn't get to make. Yeah. Because obviously, the Lovely Bones was um, 
you know, pretty much just wrestled from her and turned into a terrible movie by Peter Jackson. Yeah. And I don't know if the movie she would have made would have been, like, great, but I'm reasonably confident it would be better than the one that we got. And also, you know, uh, Jane Got a Gun, I think, was the movie that she didn't get to make, and then uh, she ended up, like, getting fired from, like, a couple of days before, or quit a few days before it was due to start shooting... And, you know, I just kind of, she, she, she is someone I just find myself rooting for to have, like, an, that one movie that just, like, completely, like, knocks everyone back, is a hit, or, you know, like, as much as the, the kind of art housey movies that she makes can be a hit, and then just provides her with the platform to kind of, like, do whatever she wants for the rest of her career, because I think she is so brilliant that, and her first two movies in particular are so brilliant that I just want nothing but the best for her. And I'm just perfectly happy with the fact that I, like, I'm not particularly sold on like half of her filmography. I mean, on the sort of flip side of that, I have yet to watch Jennifer's Body, but I'm enjoying just watching the discourse kind of come back round to it. But, you know, I, I can't let this go by without mentioning Karen Kasama, can I? Mm-hmm. In that just whatever she does. Because every so often I think about Destroyer and I think about how great, that film is and that you know even with nicole kidman in it it was like it didn't sort of explode in the way that i think it should have done um yeah to really push her through to the echelon of directors who are like incredible with action and tension um and i think she plays tension like no one else so i really want to see jennifer's body but yeah every so often i think about destroyer and i think about how it should have been should have pushed her forward but i also just think like was it because the the makeup was maybe a little bit too harsh on Nicole mm. Kidman because every so often I think about it and I'm like but she's not she's not an addict and she look I mean but she, she's an alcoholic I guess but uh, I don't know but I think maybe we went a bit too far as much as I love the film I really do mm. I, I do think that there is like a it's a fine line um in terms of like the level of brutality that I think people are willing to stomach in a movie True. and whilst whilst I wouldn't say that Destroyer is like extreme in that regard but i think it's like just slightly too brutal for the kind of audience it was aimed at because it was kind of being posited as like an awards movie and it's kind of too straightforward in it's just kind of like depictions of 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 violence but also like the, the tone of it is so bleak uh in a lot of ways as well i feel like maybe that's what undercuts it it's kind of similar as well uh to I was never really here where like that was a movie that was probably too brutal to kind of like really catch on with art house audiences the way that presumably Lynn Ramsey hoped it would. Mm. Uh, although Destroyer is better. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. Well, no, no, uh, no contention from me on that point. Ed. <laughs> yeah. Every time I say that title though, I keep thinking that there's like seven different movies that all have a very similar title <laughs> yeah. that I'm afraid I'm saying instead. Um, uh, someone as well who I think, that it's not so much that they have like fallen off so much as the fact that I have such wildly different reactions to her work is Claire Denis. Oh my god, who... I was a... she's on my list too. <laughs> yeah, because like Love Boatari, literally one of my favorite movies ever. I think that's such a beautiful movie. 35 Shots of Rum, I think, is incredible. I really loved Let the Sunshine In, but then she'll do like a white material or a high life. Um, High Life, that's why I was going to say High Rise, but no, different one. Um, High Life, which is like, I appreciate, but didn't particularly like, like that was the one that 
where like all the pieces are you know on paper you know all the the elements of that movie and think oh i'm gonna really like this and then i watched it and i was like okay yeah <laughs> cool um glad you got to make your space movie but um what else have you got and that's not to like just i absolutely not dismiss her i think she's like one of the great directors working today but like a lot of that you know like she could make like 12 high lives where i watch it and i'm just kind of like don't don't really care about this and she would still be someone who's every new movie i would just be so excited to see because you know like like i said the the, the three movies i listed and that's not even taking into account like trouble every day or whatever like she is such a, a an interesting talent someone who is so brilliant at what she does and who does such interesting things every time that you know it you even if you know she has a string of movies in a row that i don't like i'm still going to be eager to see any of them that's how i feel about um that's exactly how i feel about uh claire denis and also about mm. um like joe swanberg and basically the majority of mumblecore yeah directors like i think the duplass brothers i almost maybe a little bit too big now <laughs> mm-hmm. but like any you know and of course the late great lynn shelton anything mm. i can get my hands on with her but yeah joe swanberg and um oh what's the guy who did the chess andrew oh andrew bajalski andrew bajalski because um support the girls yes great movie great isn't it like yeah kind of sort of plausibly real life hilarity and also like the sort of social undercurrent and it wasn't what i expected from him at all mm, so i see yeah. like sometimes our passes are also a bit of a wild card as well and i don't know whether it's because it's like look you're genuinely going to keep me guessing because i know i spoke a lot about michael winterbottom the last time mm, uh, last episode mm. and i feel like he's kind of in there as well and i think there's something about people where it's like all right you get this one <laughs> and I'd say that yeah. even though I really didn't care for Free Fire, Ben Wheatley's like that for me as well. Mm, yeah, especially because he is someone who has reached that stage where he is kind of like working on a bunch of different budget levels. I know he's no longer doing the to- Tomb Raider movie, but like he is someone who like, you know, he can do something as like small and intimate as Down Terrace and, and the, the lockdown movie that he's working on. But then he can also do something like high, the aforementioned High Rise, where like that's clearly a movie that's got a lot of uh, money put into it. And even though I don't think it's a particularly good adaptation of the the Ballard novel, like it's it's cool to see him taking a swing on something like that. Mm. My final one, uh, in terms of people who like, I'm just kind of like whatever they do, even if I don't like the movies at all, is Terence Malick, who I have like you know like a lot of uh budding cineasts you know i watched the the, his first two movies or his first three movies really you know um badlands and uh days of heaven and the thin red line and was like oh my god like this guy makes a movie a decade i can't you know or a movie every two decades and then whenever it comes out it's just this kind of like crystalline perfect thing i wish he would make more and then you know after he did another you know movie a decade with the new world and the tree of life which i also think are both very good he started making a lot of movies <laughs> and um, I was not particularly enamoured with a bunch of them. I thought that uh, To the Wonder was pretty terrible mm. and kind of felt like, you know, that's the cliche, but it kind of felt like someone like making 
the version of a Terrence Malick movie that everyone insists Terrence Malick movies are. <laughs> you know, just kind of like people who don't like his movies. Um, I wasn't particularly keen on Night of Cups. I did really like Song to Song, but like it kind of felt like that was just the case where that kind of free-floating, you know, whispery style finally found something that really clicked for me. Um, but I kind of like stayed with him throughout all of it because I just kind of thought one of these days he's going to like do something great again. He's going to finally, you know, find the, the subject that really works for him. And then he made A Hidden Life, which was like him applying that kind of style that he'd been working on in these slightly more navel gazy movies to this story that had like incredible moral weight to it. You know, it's all about, you know, conscientious objective in World War Two and like what he suffers at the hands of the Nazis for refusing to go out and fight or even to be involved in a non-violent capacity with the Nazis. And I thought that was like such an incredible movie, truly one of the best movies of the last decade. And that was one of those cases where I kind of felt really vindicated for having kind of like stayed with him even through all these movies that seem to have like shed a lot of people's interest in him or where I'd got people to kind of like write him off entirely as a guy who like made a bunch of great movies in the 70s and one great movie in the 90s and then kind of got progressively like less interesting um that that was one of the real cases where I really felt like okay this was justified kind of really sticking with him for all this time and the final one on my list is I think my ultimate sort of pass also the ultimate wild card it's got to be Steven Soderbergh mm, any yeah. anything Steve's attached to I am down for like i watched the laundromat <laughs> it's a lovely bit of agit prop um yeah. i still anyone who's slept on i'm not in the way that you will take this you mucky pups uh magic mike and magic mike xxl the oceans franchise contagion hello like he just he, he's just kind of steadily churning out stuff with a healthy disdain for the glitz and glamour <laughs> of mm. um, the mainstream system and yet always managing to get his stuff made. David Finch is jealous of him. Like, yeah, Steven Soderbergh, my ride or die. <laughs> mm. The girlfriend experience as well, I think is a good one oh, in yeah. that kind of being very interested in looking at systems and how they affect people and also just being very kind of uh, cynical about it as well. And also... Um, you know, he he also produced the TV adaptation of that movie, which is really, really good and was like a really good outlet for other voices, which, you know, like I always thought was a, you know, a, a great thing for him to do, to kind of hand that show over to Amy Simetz and Lodge Kerrigan. And they did great things with that material and kind of like took it in their own direction. And like there's something really nice about him you know being someone who can get pretty much anything he wants made you know because he's not because he's like super duper powerful or anything although he does have a lot of power and influence but just because he's able to work within the system and to make stuff like cheaply to help other creators get their stuff made uh is a real kind of like menschy sort of thing for him to do <laughs> so we're going to the final section of the show which is srs recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week Friends of the podcast, Chris Thorburn and Richie Brown have come out with a podcast that of their own, of their own, mm. that is as astute and hilarious as they are. It is Flim Springfield. 
and it's a premise where I'm like, surely someone else has done this, but no, no, they haven't. Um, it is where Richie and Chris will take an episode of The Simpsons and find a film reference in it and then watch mm. the film that the episode is referencing. And it's just a beautiful springboard for all things Springfield conversation, culture, the kind of per- the um, permutations of these references. Oh, it's great fun. There's a couple of episodes out now. I think they're coming out every Monday. It's across all good um, podcast platforms. Flim Springfield, because I think it will be right up you listeners' uh, respective streets. <laughs> Mm, yeah, incredibly jealous when I saw the premise of that podcast. <laughs> God damn it, that's a good idea. Hot dang. <laughs> mm. What's your What's your favourite ever film reference in The Simpsons, Emily? I think actually because um, Richie did a little Instagram poll about it. And the one mm-hmm. that, I, I mean, there's so many, it's really hard to pick like an absolute favourite. But the one that always comes to the forefront of my mind, and I don't know why, maybe someone else can analyse it for me, is... Homer guarding the giant pile of sugar in the <laughs> Simpsons' backyard, mumbling Scarface style. <laughs> when you come to America, first you get the sugar, then you get the power, then you get the women. I think it's one of the funniest things ever because it's just this little throwaway line as he's like hallucinating. But there's so many beautiful moments. I can't. But yeah, that's that's the one my brain always jumps to. How about you, Ed? Mm. That is a good one. For me, the one that I always go to, and it's kind of Empire, um, kind of tipped the scales on this one, I think, because I remember years and years ago, there was a copy of Empire magazine where they cited this as like the best Simpsons film joke, and I've never been able to get it out of my mind. Is like That's the one I think to automatically, is when they go to Japan, and they're on the flight over, and Marge says to Homer, uh, you're like Japan, you're like Rashomon, and uh, Homer goes, that's not how I remember it. <laughs> It's, it's such a good joke and like i remember watching that episode for the first time i had no idea what rashomon was had no idea what the hell that joke meant and then like years later like discovering like what rashomon was and the rashomon effect thinking oh my god that's such a good joke <laughs> um uh, my recommendation for this week uh, is a collection of short stories by ted chang called stories of your life oh, which i read this week because um i'm just trying to read books that i've had on my shelves for a really long time and i know i picked that one like a couple of years ago uh it's probably most notable at this point for containing the story story of her life which became the movie arrival and i think the collection is often now just called arrival uh if you kind of like pick it up since 2016 when they reprinted it but it's a great collection of really beautiful science fiction or sometimes fantasy short stories which uh, if you like uh, arrival in terms of being about heady concepts that will also kind of like reduce you to a puddle you know they're all kind of like that in some regards even if they're about you know workers on the tower of babel like kind of like the the mechanics of climbing up to the top of the uh, tower so that you can break into the vault of heaven or essentially the same plot as limitless you know like someone like activating every aspect of their brain but done in a way that is like super tense and smart and like affecting and you know like all the stories in that collection are are really great obviously the story of your life is the standout because it's formally such a daring idea and he executes it so well 
but all those stories are, are really great some of the best science fiction i've read in ages and uh someone who i think people should uh, discover he also just put out a new collection called exhalation which i also have on my to read list so like ted chang a, a great great writer of intelligent science fiction and uh people should should check out his his work if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player of heaven spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me 